Amen. What a good song. I know many of you have been singing that for decades, uh, but what a, what a timeless truth. I, I know that some of you here, um, and in fact, maybe it isn't even recently, but I know one of you at least has lost a, a, a loved one in the past week, and that, that gives hope. And so I pray that that's an encouragement to you. And many of you have lost parents or, or children or neighbors. Um, and so as believers, what, what hope we have. Because Jesus rose, there is the day coming when, when we will be raised imperishable. Um, and death will be completely and totally swallowed up. And we will be with him and with, with our brothers and sisters um, in the Lord forever. And so what great hope. I, I love that song. I was reminded of Jean Felberg. That was her favorite song. And so I was just reminded of her. Um, so what, what great hope. Um, so let's, we're going to continue um, in our, our sermon series through the book of Hebrews. And so we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 9. Um, and I just want to, just in light of, of, of Ned's praying and just thinking about um, all that's going on, let me just remind you, I think I know most of you, but, but just a reminder that, that the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ is, is a, a foundation of hope, a secure hope. Um, and through the gospel, through the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus and, and the ascension, um, those who put their faith in him have a sure hope. And, and so pandemic or not, um, sickness or not, financial struggle or not, with, with the gospel, there is hope. And so if you, don't, if you don't know God, if you don't know the peace that comes through knowing God through Jesus Christ, I just want you to, to hear that. It's good news that, that, that transcends any cultural time or place or circumstance. And so I would love to talk to you about what it means to, to have that hope, to know God. And, and I know many here would also be, would be glad to talk with you. I just want you to know, if you don't know Jesus, um, you should. Um, and, and so that's our hope. We, we do this because he does live and because we do believe the gospel is, is powerful and it is good news. Um, and so I just want you to know that uh, here at the outset. But we're going to be going through uh, verses 1 through 10 of, of Hebrews chapter 9. And really what we're going to do, all of chapter 9 should really be preached in one sermon. Um, but it would take way too long and I have to go way too fast. I have to talk much more fast than I normally do, which I know is a struggle for some of you. And so we're just going to do verses 1 through 10. Uh, but it is going to set the stage for what's coming next week. Uh, and so if you remember last week, uh, chapter 8, when Will preached on, on chapter 8, the, the point was that in the, the coming of Christ and the establishment of this new covenant, there's a, a better ministry and a better, better promises of this new covenant. And so and that's a continuation of, of the long-term argument that Jesus is better. The song we just sang, Jesus is better. That's the refrain of the book of Hebrews saying that there's no other system, there's no other set of rules or regulations that, that can bring fellowship with God than Jesus in this new covenant. And so specifically for the audience of Hebrews, they were tempted to go back to the old way, to this old covenant. And, and his argument is that that would be folly. That would be crazy. And so he continues to make the point that Jesus is better and holding fast to him is the anchor for, for the soul. And so this week he, he's going to set the stage. So, so the second half of chapter nine is going to be all about Jesus and, and the, the place where he offers this new covenant ministry, the true holy of holies. He's going to talk about the blood of Jesus that, that is, is this new covenant. He's going to talk about the eternal uh, effects of this one sacrifice that Jesus has made in the new covenant. So that's where he's going. But before he's, he's going to lay out in verses one through 10 of chapter nine, that these, these themes and how they played themselves out in the old covenant. And so he's going to focus on, on where, where these old covenant regulations, the, the place that the sacrifices took and the blood that was involved there and the, the time, the regularity of that. 
And so verses 1 through 10 are going to show these old covenant regulations so that when next week when he gets to the supremacy of Christ, it's going to be clear that it's much more superior than that which came before. And so the superiority of the new covenant is going to continue to be a theme. And so this week, we're just looking at these old covenant regulations, and I think it's going to be encouraging for us. I do think there there's some some great uh, encouraging truths that that we'll see in these first 10 verses. Okay, and so again, the, the, the theme is going to be that this, the new has come and the old is, is set to fade and ought to fade because it's been replaced. And again, just by way of reminder, that this whole thing, while, while we're not tempted to fall back to this old covenant, we, we don't go to the temple and offer sacrifices, the, 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 the main deal, the, the, the main principle is that fellowship with God is what has been secured through this new covenant. And so to forsake Jesus is to lose fellowship with God. You can't find it anywhere else. Jesus has come and established the new covenant and perfect fellowship with God is now attainable. The, the way has been opened once and for all and unhindered access to God is, is available only through Jesus Christ. And so, so this door has been opened. The new covenant has been, been, been made available and the old no longer has a purpose. It, it's not to function anymore because the new has come. So, so that's what we'll see. So let me, let me just read. You can follow along. I, I think we'll have the words up um, on the screen. But Hebrews 9, I'm going to read verses 1 through 10, and then I will pray for us, then we'll work through uh, these verses. So beginning in verse 1 of Hebrews chapter 9, he continues. Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of presence. It is called the holy place. Now behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having in it the gold altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant, which was covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna, and Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. And above it, that is the Ark, were the cherubim, of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Now of these things we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties, but into the second section only the high priest goes, and he but once a year and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation." And that's where we'll stop, and, and Lord Lynn will pick up in verse 11 next week. But let me pray for us uh, as we look at these verses. Uh, Father, we, we come to you recognizing that, that Christ is our only hope, our, our, our one mediator between you, holy God, and us fallen sinful creation is Christ our Lord. And so we come to you in his name, through him, and in, in union with him, united with him in a death like his, and, and raised to life with a resurrection like his, and we long for the day when we will be raised completely and fully bodily to be with him forever. And so we are thankful for the the fellowship we have with you. We've been purchased not with gold or with silver or with anything else, but with the precious blood of the lamb who was slain, the spotless lamb. And so we come to you through him asking that you'd encourage us as we look at your word this morning. 
And it's in Christ's name that we pray, amen. All right, so there's, there's two sections, two simple sections here. We're gonna see verses one through five. Our, our first point is gonna be the Old Covenant floor plan. So the Old Covenant floor plan, it's a focus on the furniture and how it's laid out. And then the second section, verses six through 10, the Old Covenant function of priests. So you see the alliteration, the FP, the floor plan and the function of priests. And so he, he switches from the, the layout to then what do the priests do? And so again, these are the old covenant regulations. And so he wants us, he wants his readers to, to be familiar and to understand what these old covenant regulations were for. And so look there at verses one through five, the, the old covenant floor plan. And so before, even in verse one, before he gives the specific layout of, of the tent or, or the tabernacle, which would also be true for the, for the temple that would come later, he, he focuses on the tent because here he's, he's in the context of talking about Moses. And, and so with Moses, the tent was the most closely associated uh, uh, dwelling place of the Lord. But the tent and the tabernacle and the temple, all of these had, had these similar basics of, of this, this holy and holy of holies. And so before he even gets into the layout, look at what he says there in verse one. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. And so remember, just, just at the end of chapter 8, what was said regarding the, the first or the old covenant. There at the end of chapter 8 in verse 13, he highlighted that the new covenant, and it has come, and with the coming of the new, the old had become obsolete. It was ready to fade away. And it's immediately after that point, the fading away of the old, that he now says, now, now, before we move on, let me at least remind you that the first covenant, the old one that's obsolete, that's faded away, even that had regulations for worship, and even that had an earthly place of holiness. And this statement at the outset of chapter 9 is significant because these regulations, these rules for worship, this floor plan, it was not as though Moses just woke up one day and said, hey, I think I should design a place of worship and a place of holiness so that we can worship God. It wasn't, it wasn't Moses' idea. It wasn't any of the Israelites' idea. These were regulations that had come from the Lord himself. And so there were regulations that the Lord gave to Moses and to the people. And so we have to be careful not to, to too quickly pass over these old covenant regulations. The time that this first covenant, this old covenant was in operation was a time that, that worshiped God according to his regulations. And they were right and they were fitting. They were, they were temporally limited, but they were still for that time and for that purpose. And so we should be careful not to, and seeing that the old has gone and that the new has come, we ought, not to, be, be, we ought to be careful not to degrade the old. It wasn't bad. It was fitting. In fact, it was good. It just was never intended to last forever. It was never intended to be permanent. It was temporary, and, and the time was to come when it was to fade away. And so it was never intended to last forever. And, and in the second half of, of Hebrews 9, he's going to show just how the regulations of the old were actually types and shadows pointing to the true holy of holies and the, the, the true sacrifice and the, and the eternal nature of this sacrifice. But he just wants to establish in verses 1 through 10 that God was the one behind the regulations of the old, just like he's the one that set the plan and the, he, he set in plan, set in motion the plan for the new covenant. And so when he says there's a new order, there's a new covenant, right? The old was from him also, and, and the new, or the old is viewed in light of the new. The old was never meant to last forever. And so I thought about this illustration. It may, it may be helpful, it may not be helpful. Uh, if you're not an Apple uh, user, it, just, just stick with me. Uh, that's, that's what I, I'm familiar with. So Apple, the iPhone, here's an illustration that, that may be helpful. When a new version of the iPhone comes out, which we're at, we're at number 12 now, but when the new one comes out, 
the old versions are pretty much obsolete. Right now, now maybe you can, you can keep them for, for a few years. They may be serviceable for a few years. Maybe you give them to your grandparents who, who are now on the, 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 this, this smartphone trend, right? So maybe you can give them an old one. But, but for, for the one who wants to be connected, the one who wants to be up to date, the, the older versions are obsolete. The, the, the newest version, when it's released, it, it pretty quickly becomes outdated and obsolete because there's new operating systems, there, there's, new, there's new updates, there's new features, and so, so the new comes and the old is, is outdated and obsolete quickly because there's always something new. And so the iPhone 12, the one that's out now, it wasn't designed, so you, so you didn't see commercials saying, this is the last iPhone you'll ever need. That's not how it works, right? No one at Apple is asking, how can we create a version of the iPhone that will, that will never become obsolete? In fact, it's quite the opposite. Let's create something that'll be, be good for a while, but then we can... We can we can introduce a new one so the old one will go. So, so that's how marketing, that, that's how they keep themselves in business. The whole deal is to continue innovating and improving and upgrading so that the old becomes obsolete and all you care about is the new. And so I, I think that's a helpful illustration and similar to what, what has happened with the old covenant. It was replaced by a new version, a new covenant, a much better covenant. And with comparison with the new covenant, the old is outdated, it's obsolete, it's useless. And we might could think of the new covenant like an iPhone infinity. It's a version that cannot be improved upon. It'll never be obsolete. This new covenant that has come, it is here forever because of its superiority. It'll, it will give you all that you could ever want or need. Now that it's here, you don't need anything else. You don't need the old, but you don't need to look forward for a new either. The, the, the covenant is here. And so it doesn't mean the old was useless or always obsolete. There was a purpose and we'll see that in the fact that, that there were God-given regulations under this old covenant. That's where he, he focuses here in verses two through five. So, so look at the floor plane as he lays it out there in verses two through five. Verse two, for a, a tent was prepared. The first section, which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of presence, it's called the holy place. Verse three, behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having in that the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant, covered in all sides with gold in which a golden urn holding the man and Aaron staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. And above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we can't speak in detail. And so this is his description of the floor plan. And a main point that he wants us to get is that this floor plan consisted of, of two sections. There's two sections. The, the, the first section, notice there in verse two, for a tent was, was prepared. The first section, here's what was in the first section, then verse three begins, behind the second curtain was a second section. So there's two sections. And he tells us the names of these sections were one, the holy place, and two, the most holy place, or the holy of holy. So, so there's the holy, then there's the really holy. There's two sections. And, and there's an increase in, in holiness as you progress from the first to the second. And so in the first section, he just briefly lays out, lays out there's a lampstand, there's a table, there's a bread of presence. If you, want to, if you want to get into all these regulations in, from Exodus chapter 25 through 31, you can go back and read all of these that the Lord is giving to Moses. And then in, verse, in chapters 35 through 40 of Exodus also, you can go back and, and read all of these. But the author mentions these pieces without going into detail any further. He just wants to, to make note that, that, that here's what was in the first section. And I don't think we need to get caught up in details, which is why I think at the end of verse 5, he says, we can't speak of these things in detail. Yeah, that's not my point. My point is for you to recognize that there were regulations and these things were in this section and these things were in this section. He's building his case. 
It doesn't really matter why some things went in some places and other things went in others. What matters for the sake of his argument is that there were regulations. And those regulations stipulated a divide between the holy place and the most holy place. And so you have the lampstand and the table and the bread of presence, all which were, were involved in the daily regular ministry of the priest, which we'll see in the second half of this, this section. But all this holy place, this all was outside the curtain. And so from the first section, the holy place, you move into a second section. But to get to the second section, you encounter this, this very visible, huge display of division, a huge curtain. And this curtain stood as a, as a visible, uh, manifest division between the holy place and the holy house. You, you're, not, you're not just going from, from one room to another. You're going from the holy to the most holy. And, and there's a division there. This, you're entering to the innermost place that's even more holy than the first place. And in the second place, the author of Hebrews only mentions two things, two pieces of furniture, two things, two, two, two symbols, two things that represented Israel's relationship with the Lord, and that was the altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant. And these two places were found in or associated with the Holy of Holies. And they're mentioned here because both served very specific purposes in connection with God's relationship to his people, and specifically with God's presence dwelling among his people. And so you have the altar of incense, which some people say, well, was it outside the Holy of Holies or was it inside? And, and there are different traditions that may say different things. But I think his point is that it was directly connected to the Holy of Holies and the Ark of the Covenant. So, so the, the table of the altar of incense is, is what someone would have to, to grab incense off of that in order to approach the Ark of the Covenant. So the, the, the altar of incense was, was directly connected with the Ark of the Covenant. They're almost always mentioned together. And it played a significant role in that sense, but also the, the daily day of atonement or the yearly day of atonement, when a, the high priest would go in, this altar of incense would be what he had to, to, to use in order to, to burn incense in the Holy of Holies so that he could dwell there. So, so it's connected with the Ark of the Covenant, which that is the main focus, I think, here, the main piece of furniture, the, 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 biggest, uh, the, the biggest symbolic representation of the Lord's dwelling with his people, which is the Ark of the Covenant. And that, the author says, was in the Holy of Holies. Now he mentions the, the manna that, that fell from heaven that was put in a jar, and he mentions Aaron's staff that, that budded. Now, now so other places don't mention that, but, but, but those two, and then the tablets of the covenant. Remember when the Lord gave the, the covenant to Moses and then they broke it. Right? Those tablets that the Lord wrote with his own hand were, were kept as a reminder and so this, the Ark of the Covenant, dwelt in the Holy of Holies. It played a significant role, specifically between the Lord dwelling with his people. And so you can write this down. I'm going to read Exodus 25. Listen to what the Lord says to Moses about the Ark of the Covenant. This is Exodus 25, verse 22. So, so the Lord dis discussing the details of the Ark. You're going to cover it with gold. You're going to have these cherubim above it. Listen to what he says to Moses. He says, there... I will meet with you from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony. I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. And so this ark of the covenant was placed in the Holy of Holies. And this was the place that, that Moses in the tabernacle would go and the Lord would meet with him. His very presence would be uniquely manifested there in that place. And it was connected to the ark of the covenant. And so this ark, I mean, remember when David, when the ark is gone and, and people are, 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 the Lord's judgment is on these other nations. Like, hey, we want the good luck trauma of the ark. And then they get the ark and things go bad. And remember there's this, the big, the big uh, idol that falls down worshiping at the, the foot of the, the, the ark of the covenant 
covenant. And they're like, well, get that out of here, take it back to David. And they, they're very careful, they bring it back. The ark played a huge role in the life of Israel. And that was there in the midst of this temple, this tent, this tabernacle. And the glory of the Lord uniquely dwelled there within the holy of holies. That was his point. And above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. The Lord's presence was there. His presence was the reason for this curtain. His presence was, was the reason there were two sections. The Lord's presence there in the holy holies was the reason for these regulations. No one could just, just trounce right in there and say, hey, Lord, I'm, I'm here today. Right? It was regulated. You, you couldn't go there unless the Lord had, had, had made a way for you to go there. No one could enter in there and live unless they abided by these regulations, which, which I just want to make this first point of application here, um, which is simply, we, we can read these. And, and so if you're reading along with our, our, our reading plan as a church, you're, you're near the end of Leviticus, and it, it's, it's tough trudging through some of those laws and regulations. But the point there, and I think a point we can see here when we read of all the temple regulations, is simply that God's, the worship of the Lord is regulated. The Lord describes, the the Lord is the one who decides how he is worshiped. The Lord prescribes how people approach him. I mean, that's a takeaway from all the Old Testament laws and regulations. If you get nothing else from Leviticus, which I think there's more there, but, but one thing to take away is that God takes seriously how he is worshiped. He must be approached on his own terms. And that's the point of these old covenant regulations. How, will one, how can one approach God? And so for the Israelites, they, they must come through one mediator who, who was Moses and then was the, the high priest. But God is the one who regulated how he could worship. And now I think practically, as a, a new covenant church, as a New Testament church, there's practically some, some things that we as a church should always do because we look at the New Testament and there were, there's, there's prescriptive things where, where the Lord says, when you gather together, sing songs and hymns and spiritual songs. God's people, new covenant gathering should sing together. That, that's a command. We, we should give ourselves to the public reading of Scripture. That's why before we pray, we read a passage of Scripture. That's why Ned read in, from 1 Corinthians 15 today. Because the Lord says, you ought to do this. You ought to teach and preach God's Word. So, so there's things that practically we worship God in a regulated way. Now, we use microphones. That, that's not in the New Testament. But we think it's helpful. It's an aid to the New Testament worship of the Lord. But we, we worship Him regula- in, a, in a regulated way. And so practically as a church, that, that works itself out in those ways. But, but most basically, we worship God through Jesus only. Right? So, so that's, that's the big picture here of a regulated worship. No one comes to God except through Jesus. And, and so it doesn't matter what, what you think or what you're taught or what you believe. If you don't come to God through Jesus, you don't come to God at all. It is regulated. God will not be approached. He, he will not enter into fellowship with anyone apart from his son. And so, so that's what we believe. That's what we proclaim. We want you to know God. We want you to be in fellowship with God. But, but that doesn't happen apart from Jesus. And so Christ is our message The gospel is what we proclaim because there's no other way to peace with God. There's no other way to fellowship with God. There's no other mediator between God and man. None. Exclusivity is God's idea. And so we we proclaim what God has demanded, what God has decided. He will be approached. He'll be worshiped through Jesus alone, whom he has graciously provided for any that would come to him. 
Well, let, let's move to our second section there, that verses six through 10. So we've looked at the old covenant uh, floor plan, but, but then he moves into verses six through 10, the, the function of the priest under this old covenant. And so, so as, we, as we move into the second section, the, the first section, the, the a main point was this distinction between these two sections. Well, now, he, as he turns to the ministry of the priests, he, he's going to focus on their, their function within these two sections. And so look there at verse 6. These preparations having thus been made, so, so having said what I just said, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties. Okay, so, so this first section... This was no stranger to the presence and ministry of the priest. They would be in the first section, the, the holy place, on a regular basis, on a daily basis. They would function there often. So that's, what, that's all he says about the first section. The priest would go in there regularly. The day after day after day, there's ritual duties that they would perform. They'd change out the bread, or they'd, they'd redo this, or they, they'd do this. And that's what they'd do regularly. But it was not so with the second section. The ministry of the priests in the second section is contrasted with their ministry in the first. So look there at verse 7. But into the second section only the high priest goes. And he but once per year and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. So notice the difference here. Into the first section, the priests go regularly. But into the second section, the place where the Lord's presence uniquely dwelt, where there's the Ark of the Covenant, only the high priest would go only once a year and only with blood to cover his sins and the unintentional sins of the people. And so this second place was not a place that was regularly populated by the priests. This most holy place, this holy of holies, the, the innermost part of this tent or tabernacle was, was set apart. The high priest would only go into this earthly holy of holies once per year and he would offer blood sacrifice from animals for his own sins and for the sins of the people because he couldn't be there with, with his sins. He couldn't be in the presence while having his sins covered by, by the sacrificial blood. And he would go year after year after year. And so this is what the high priest would do once a year in the Holy of Holies, the second section. And so whether it's the tent or the tabernacle or later the temple that, that the great Solomon would build, Every place of worship that Israel erected to worship the Lord, the covenant Lord, in every one of those places, there were two sections, a holy place and a most holy place, and there's a clear distinction between them because the Lord would dwell in their midst and he only dwelt in the holy of holies. And the distinction between the holy and the holy of holies was to make perfectly clear that access to God, that permission into his presence was extremely limited. It was severely limited, direct access to the Lord and to his presence was heavily regulated. And that was the point of these old covenant regulations. And so look there at verse eight, by this, which by, he means the existence of these two sections, by this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing. And so, so here's what he means. So he's just laid all this out and now he's, he's, he's explaining what this means. And what he means is that as long as the first section is still standing or still functioning, as long as there was still a first section in regular daily use, then that meant that access into the second section was not opened. It was open to, to one man once a year with very specific regulations, but it wasn't opened 
for public access, for, for general widespread access. So as long as there's a first section, that tells us, oh, there's still regulations for entering into the holy place, which had implications for the Israelites as they're worshiping, as they're in covenant relationship with the Lord. As long as, long as there's a strict divide between the first and second sections, their access, their fellowship to God was, was not yet opened in the way that it would be. And there was, according to verse 8, an intended teaching of the Holy Spirit in regards to how the tent was set up. I think he's saying that, that this whole design, and now we're looking back at it, and we, we ought to recognize the Spirit himself is, is explaining to us that this was not intended to last forever, that there was a time coming when the way would be opened. There was a time coming when access would be opened. I mean, that was the point of chapter 8, the promise of a new covenant. There, there wouldn't be a need for a new if the old was faultless. But according to the author of Hebrews, the, the time for the opening, the, the time for access granted corresponds, he says, to the present age. Which is what he says there at the beginning of verse 9. So he says, which, now, now some people are going to disagree. It's kind of an aside. In, in these, these parentheses, he says it's symbolic for the present age. You see there in verse 9, in parentheses probably in your, in your Bible, and so when he says that, which is symbolic, the question is, well, what is it? What is the which, which he's referring to? What is it? Now, he doesn't mean that the first section still standing is symbolic of the present age. Some people would say that. I don't think that makes sense. That would go, seem to go against his entire argument here that the first, if the first section was still standing, and if the present age represented that, then the ministry of the earthly priest would still be necessary. And so what he means when he says that it is symbolic for the present age I think the present age he's talking about is this new covenant reality that's come. He's talking about the, this new covenant reality where access is opened. He, he doesn't want them to miss the point of his discussion here regarding the layout of the temple and the ministry of the priests. In other words, he wants the audience to know that they are living in the time indicated by the Holy Spirit when, when it's opened, when, when the old is fading. It's, it's, its function, its usefulness is gone because it's been surpassed, replaced by a new covenant and the time when the way into the holy places has been opened is now when Christ has come and has died and has raised and ascended to the right hand of the Father and is now in the true holy of holies. That's what's coming in chapter 10. There's no need for this anymore. The new has come and access is now opened. And the coming of the new sheds light on the old. So, so notice how in verse 9 he goes back to the setup of the old covenant tent. So according to this arrangement there, verse 9, that is under these old covenant regulations, under this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. Verse 10, but these gifts, these sacrifices, deal only with food and drink and various washings and regulations for the body imposed until the time of Reformation. So notice what he says there. I mean, that, that's, a, that's, a, that's a big statement there in verses 9 and 10. He's highlighting the inability of this old covenant. All the regulations, all the gifts and sacrifices, he says they cannot nor ever could perfect the conscience of the worshiper, which is similar to what he said back in, in chapter 7, verse 19, when he noted that the law made nothing perfect. It was incapable of perfecting. He said that the law was weak and useless. And later in chapter 10, he's going to say that the law can never, by the same sacrifices offered over and over and over, make perfect or complete those who draw near. So, so it's limited. The old was limited. 
All the Old Covenant regulations, though they were God-ordained, though they were purposeful, though they functioned for a specific time, they were never going to accomplish what was most needed for God's people. There's always going to be a need for a new and a better covenant. And so the Old Covenant regulations were never going to provide complete cleansing, conscience cleansing. So, so, so they're, they're, it's all external. That, that's his point there. They, they all deal with external things, the washings and food and cleanings. Like, think about the Pharisees. That's all they were about was these external things. The New Covenant deals with something that the old never could touch. That's why last week with the New Covenant, it's a, it's a new heart. It was necessary because that, that's the conscience cleansing. And so with this New Covenant, which we'll get into next week, with the, the, the shedding of the blood, the death of Jesus, there is, there is true forgiveness so that the believer who comes to God through Jesus can, can, be, can be assured that our sins are forgiven, that we truly are accepted because of Jesus. We don't have to wait, well, I, I, I gotta ask for forgiveness again because I've got sins weighing me down. No, in Jesus, they're paid in full. And you can, in clear conscience, worship God because Jesus actually paid for your sins. This is the new covenant reality. And so all the regulations of the old were fundamentally external. And the author's argument is that these regulations were only ever meant to be temporary, and they were only meant to point to this greater cleansing, this, this conscience cleansing that was needed and that was, has been provided in the new. And these regulations, though necessary under the old, were always meant to fade out of existence when the new came. And so when the substance comes, the shadow disappears. If you put your hand over a table... And, and, and you're looking at the table, there's a shadow. But, but when your hand gets there, there's no more shadow. So the purpose of the shadow is, that, hey, there, there's a hand up there. But when, the, when the, the, the hand's on the table, there's no shadow because the substance is real. It's there and there's no need for a shadow. So the old were, were types and shadows. But when Jesus comes, when the new comes, there's no need for the shadows anymore. And so these regulations were, were meant to fade away because the substance has come in Christ and the new covenant. And so that's why verse 10 ends, these regulations dealing with only food and drink and various washings and regulations. He says that they were imposed until the time of reformation. Until the time of a new order, the NIV says. Until the, this complete overhaul. So it's temporary. This is, this is the reformation that, that was awaited for, waited for under the old covenant. And it has come, not with Martin Luther, one of the, the Protestant reformers, but with Jesus, the new covenant reformer, Right? He is the reformer. And it was the time of reformation that has now come in Christ. And that's what he, he wants his audience to know. The author wants his audience to know that, that Jesus has come. The new covenant has come. The time of reformation has come. And so he closes his discussion on old covenant regulations and he transitions his attention to Christ in the reality of the new covenant and the blood of Christ that, that's been taken into the true holy of holies, which has secured eternal redemption by the once for all sacrifice of Christ. And, and Lord willing, we will get to that next week. But, but as we close, I just want to draw your attention to, to, to one last point of application. That, that's the, the new hope that we have. There's a new hope. And I'm not talking about episode four of Star Wars, where, where Luke Skywalker is, is he the new hope that can defeat the Sith? No, this is a greater hope than that. 
Right? This is the new hope, the real hope that, that conquers something much greater than a Sith Lord or a, a dark side. This is the, the son who takes on flesh and conquers sin and death and, and is, is punished and, and buried and conquered for three days by death. And then he is raised victorious and ascends to the right hand of the Father and now has a new covenant ministry where he's interceding for his people daily, every day. Lord, forgive them. They're mine. Their sins are paid for. Forgive them. Accept them on my my behalf, forgive them day in and day out. This new covenant minister, this new covenant high priest has given us a true new hope. We don't have to go to a high priest. We don't have to go to a holy of holies with fear and trembling. We, don't, we haven't come to Sinai with, with fear, like don't strike us. Moses, you go up there. We don't want to touch the mountain or we're going to die. No, we with confidence and boldness come to Mount Zion where Christ is Lord and, and we're, we're citizens of this city that is eternal and whose walls will never be shaken. And so we have a new hope because of what Jesus has done. And so, so the issue, remember the issue at hand in all of this is what right does a sinful person have to be in relationship with a holy God? How can fellowship with God happen if we know ourselves and, and we believe what is true and what must be true of God? How can we have fellowship? And in the new covenant, there's hope because a sacrifice has been made that secures that relationship. A sacrifice has been made. A covenant has been introduced that purifies the conscience of those who draw near to God, the holy God, through Christ. We have hope because of Christ, our great high priest. And for the Christian, this is a truth that ought never lose its power. We know God through our great high priest, Jesus Christ. We have fellowship with God the Father through the Son who has given us his spirit. We have communion with God, real communion with God. We know him because of what's been accomplished for us. And so let me pray for us, and then we will sing in response.